You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Jenny Lacote on the show with me today. She has a phenomenal new book. It's called The Girl from the Channel Islands, a World War II novel. And I'll tell you what, if you guys love historical fiction the way uh, uh, me and my family do here uh, at the Author Stories Podcast, you are going to want this book. Um for uh for your stack and for its amazing story of uh of a little bit different view of of a time period that we're all very familiar with um jenny thank you for joining me today welcome to the show oh pleasure thanks for having me absolutely uh jenny we begin each show with the same question and that question is what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller <laughs> do you know i'm not sure that i it was quite late on that I wanted to be a professional writer. It wasn't something that I thought about when I was a kid. But when I look back, when I think about being, you know, quite a young kid in Jersey, I used to write for fun in my bedroom. I used to disappear off to my room and write stories. And my favorite thing to do at school was when they said, we're going to write a story today about this. So I loved writing from a very early age. But I think early on, I was more interested in performing, and that's what I did initially. So actually sitting down and, and being a professional writer was something that, that came a little bit later. You know, that is not an odd story uh, at all uh, that, uh, you know, we've done more than a thousand episodes of this show, and we've heard lots of different answers to that. And there's something um, about people that are born with the storytelling gene, if we can say that. I know that's a little weird, but some people are just born storytellers. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to become a professional novelist. That's just one of the ways that can manifest. Um, but uh, and, and actors, uh, the, the, I think there's a lot of commonality there. Um, what was it about acting that uh, that drew you uh, initially? Well, I wasn't really an actor. I did do a, I did do some acting, but uh, yeah. but not very long. Um, mainly because I read the reviews, and, uh, <laughs> and it was made very clear to me that I should think about doing something else. Um, but what I, I started off as a kid, I used to do dance classes, so I sort of had the showing off gene from quite early on. And then what happened is that I got into um, when I was a teenager, I got into folk clubs. I started singing in folk clubs. And that got me into stand-up when I was in my early 20s. So I became a stand-up on what was then called the alternative circuit, in the, the, sort of the alternative comedy cabaret circuit in London. And, uh, and I spent 11 years doing that. And, of course, I wrote my own material. So that's when I started writing seriously. And during that time, I was also doing features for magazines and stuff like that. So writing was always kind of there in the background. It's just that right. initially I needed that um, I needed that kick, that buzz from the audience. But as I got a little bit older, that faded away, and I realized that actually what I was really interested in 
was the material that I was writing. So what is what is alternative uh, comedy or uh, alternative uh, stand up? What what does that term mean? Well, even at the time, it was a bit of a disputed term, but there was a big turning point in Britain in the late 70s, early 80s, where comedy had been very traditional. It was all about guys wearing frilly shirts, telling mother-in-law jokes. And all of a sudden, (laughs) there was a new generation of young comics, probably because a uh, a whole new generation of people had been to university and they had a different perspective on life. And you had a a new bunch of young people coming in who wanted to talk about politics, who wanted to talk about observational stuff, who wanted to tell personal stories. Um, And it was just a very different kind of content. And also people writing their own material rather than relying on jokes and gags. Um, So new clubs sprung up, the Comedy Store, which was um, based on, I think, the, um, the New York and L.A. stores. Um, sprung up here, and I and I used to work there regularly. So uh, it was uh, it was a whole scene, and I was really in the right place at the right time for that one. Stand up comedy is an interesting um, form uh, because you you obviously are are writing material if you're doing things like like you did. Um, you're working out bits. Uh, you're working out stories, um, but then you're getting feedback from the audience, and it's almost immediate that uh, you know. You know, if you write a novel, uh, you you put in months and months and months of work, and then you go through series of of edits with your with your editor and your publisher, and you know there's a lot of back and forth. And even though the the initial stages are very solitary, um, there does become a, a bit of a collaborative uh, thing that happens with the editors and and things like that. Um, but then then it goes out to the stores, and then ultimately to the readers. And then you get feedback after all of this process has happened. And but when you're on the stage and uh, you're you're doing a, a story that you've written, or maybe just you know inspiration hits you in the moment, and and you come up with a new way of of saying something or delivering something, you get immediate feedback from the audience. There's not this dissociated months long process between the two points. Um, do, do you think that helped you as a as a as a novelist that that time? of working through things, getting audience feedback and seeing how people um, responded to the things you were saying? Well, you know, that's a really interesting point, actually, because the whole thing about the delayed gratification is something that I think I struggled with for a long time. Um, Because obviously, as a stand-up, you are in complete control of what you're doing. And as you say, it's immediate. The audience tells you whether what you're doing is working Um, You write a new joke or a new section and either it works or it doesn't. And when I first when I first became a professional writer as opposed to a performer, I started off in TV writing on sitcoms and then soaps and dramas. And of course, in television, there's a lot of again, a lot of editing, a lot of back and forth, a lot of collaboration. And I did struggle with that a little bit at the beginning because I just wasn't used to people saying this doesn't work. You have to go and do this again. Um, and also it, it is that solitary thing of working in on your own in a room with with no immediate contact and no sense of whether or not something's going to work, then waiting weeks for a producer to get back to you with a, a yay or nay. So it's um, it's a very different process. Um, but at this point, 
I, I think probably when I went into novel writing, I'd been a writer in TV and, and film for so long that I'd got used to that process by then. I got used to sitting in a room on my own, working stuff out, knowing when is the time to share it with other people because you've done as much as you can. Um, I think also stand-up to some extent also teaches you to work on your own because obviously as a stand-up, you spend a lot of time on your own. Sometimes, right. you know, you would drive to a gig, do the gig, stay in a hotel, drive back in the morning, and you wouldn't. the only people you really speak to, apart from your sound technician, is the audience. So it's quite a solitary activity. And, and I think that prepares you in some way for, for writing because you do spend an awful lot of time sitting in front of your computer with, you know, a head full of people that you can't really discuss with anyone else because nobody knows the detail. So this uh, this book, The Girl from the uh, Channel Islands, is your American debut. Is, is, is that right in, in the American market? It is. Well, it's my debut novel. Uh, OK. Um, it came out in the UK last year under a different title um, called Hedy's War. Um, and so it's, yeah, it was the first novel, not the first novel I attempted. I attempted a novel 20 years ago, which um, which nobody wanted and is now buried in the back <laughs> garden with a stake through it. Because I read it again recently and thought, ah, now I can see why nobody wanted this. Um, so sometimes... You know, it just takes a long time. And I'm, yeah. not, I'm not the quickest learner. Sometimes it takes a long time to hone that craft and to get to a point where you feel confident with something. Um, you know, it, it, I've been writing now for, I guess, about 30 years. And I keep saying to people, I think I'm just about beginning to get the hang of it. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, Jenny, um, you know, having done uh, all of these author interviews that we've done, I can count on my hands possibly one foot um the the amount of people who published their first novel they had ever attempted um it, it's just not it's not what happens most of us have a desk drawer novel or a trunk novel or a buried in the back garden with a stake through it novel um that's that's part of the process i think is learning um you, you kind of have to go from point a to point z uh to to know if it can be done. And, and maybe that's not the thing that goes out to the world. Well, I think, I think what was useful for me is that when I wrote my, my first novel 20 years ago, I just hadn't had the same um, writing experience. Um, and when I, when I attempted this one, um, which I started in about 2016, I think, by that time I had written on a lot more TV shows. I had written a film script, um, a, a screenplay which was made into a, a movie, and I just had a lot more experience. And that experience enabled me to be able to put the story together more effectively. What I struggled with, of course, was moving into prose from screen dialogue because there are, although there's a big overlap, if you look at it as two Venn diagrams, there's, there's quite a big overlap, but there's sure. also a lot of differences. Um, and I actually went to a trainer, um, somebody who, to help me writing prose, because I've, I've done some script teaching in the past, and I've taught a number of writers to go from uh, prose to screen. And I thought, well, if, I've, if I feel that they need help with that, then clearly I need help going the other direction. So I, um, I went to somebody who, was a, uh, who actually lives quite locally to me, who was a very good teacher, tutor. And I had a couple of sessions with her and she kind of talked me through 
but also took me through the similarities um, and made me less fearful of, of writing sections of prose, which I was nervous about to begin with, because if you're used to stage directions and dialogue, it is a different form. Jenny, if people were familiar with your uh, with your stand up work or your um, screenwriting work, would this be a surprise for them uh, when uh, to read The Girl from the Channel Islands? <laughs> yeah, I think it probably would. I mean, stand up was a long time ago. I retired from stand up in 1993. So it's a long time since I've done that. And uh, for me, I guess it was. It was a slow and natural process of moving from comedy writing, which was a natural transition from stand-up, yeah. um, writing sitcoms and sketches, then going into soaps, um, soap operas and dramas, which is what I did for TV, and then moving into sort of more long-form pieces, standalone pieces, um, like drama documentaries, um, screenplays. Uh, so it was it was a gradual process. but. Um, I think for somebody who just seen me at the comedy store in 1986 and then and then read this book I think they it would it would seem like quite a big jump <laughs> but, but for me it's actually been a slow process of sure you know, just one step at a time and and you're learning your craft as you as you move forward So Jenny I understand that you have a personal connection uh with this story uh or, or with the with the uh, the historical story that the girl from the Channel Islands is is based around. Um, what what is your connection to uh, to these events? Well, um, the my my connection to Jersey is that um, my family is a Jersey family. We go back several generations there, and my parents and grandparents lived through the occupation of Jersey. Um, my grandparents on both sides of the family raised my mum and my dad as kids during the occupation years. Um, and it was a very, very traumatic time for them. It's a period of history that isn't especially well known because the Channel Islands, um, which are a group of small islands, geographically actually closer to France, but part of Britain. And they were the only British territory to be um, occupied during World War Two, so uh, yeah, it's it's not even in even in the UK, it's it's not a hugely known history, um, and there's a lot of false narratives about it. So that it, some people said, oh, it wasn't really that bad. They sort of the locals kind of rubbed along okay with the German invaders, and other people said, no, you know, a lot of the locals collaborated and. Actually, you know, there is some truth in both of that, but neither is really true. It's a very mixed, checkered picture, and it's a complex picture. And, as most uh, of history is. Of course, exactly. And, uh, and as all of occupied Europe and all of occupied territory was in the, um, in the Second World War. But my family had, um, particular, uh, had a particular story, which is why I wrote um, my, my film Another Mother's Son about it, because... On my mum's side of the family, uh, they uh, sheltered and hid a Russian slave worker who'd been brought over to do construction work by the Nazis and escaped from his camp. This happened on a number of occasions. And um, they hid a slave worker, but unfortunately were betrayed. And uh, two of them went to the concentration camps for it. Um, this is So the, the background to the occupation as, as a whole, although 
this particular book is is not about my family. It's it's about separate characters. But um, the the background to the story is something that I've kind of lived with as a writer for a number of years because I've been researching that story and writing about that story for some time. Well, we we've all heard um, stories of the the German occupation and um, the Jewish people who were taken to concentration camps. We've heard of, of of several different groups of people that were abused, murdered, um, that, that made up this Holocaust. Um, one thing that that gets tragically overlooked um, are are stories of of the resistance of of people that stood up against this regime and these uh, invaders or uh, if not stood up to them, um, did subversive things to um, to protect people and to to undermine what what the occupiers were trying to do. And um, th- that's what I, I, I found most intriguing about this story is that they're they're You know, finally, someone is telling the story of these 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 common people who are doing extraordinary um, things just to protect their neighbors and friends and, and people that they just met. There was there was a great deal of that, um, and yeah. that certainly in my family, the fact that um, on my mum's side they were protecting this Russian. In fact, that it was it was more than one person. There were there were two Russian slave workers that they protected in different parts of the family. And on my dad's side of the family, my grandfather was making crystal radio sets because they weren't allowed to have radios or to listen to the BBC. So actually. My family on both sides were involved in what you could loosely call resistance activity. Um, and that's, again, a story that was in the, in the Channel Islands occupation, even in British history, was largely overlooked. Um, and when I started finding out about this, um, I'd kind of always known the, 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 the bold fact of it, but I'd never really known the details of it until I started looking into it um, when I was a little bit older. And they'd never really been recognised. That came much later. It wasn't until um, the nineties that um, that that kind of that some of that bravery and courage of local people started to be publicly recognised, and, and a plaque was put on um, the house where my my great aunt lived, for example. And story in this book in of the girl from the Channel Islands. Um, it was only actually in the last few years that this story came to light and that uh, Dorothea, who's one of the, uh, the characters in the book, um, based on Dor- the, real, the real Dorothea, um, at, there is now a plaque of the house where she saved, uh, where, where she kept Hedy for those years and hid her at great personal risk. So, yeah, some of this is really only coming out even now, like 50 or 60 years later. Wow. Dream Author by Sophie Hanna is an immersive 14-month coaching program for writers at any and every level of experience, and also for those of you who want to write and are just waiting for the right encouragement and guidance to get you started. Your writing dreams should make you happy. For so many of us, our dreams are not a source of happiness. Instead, they cause us stress, guilt, frustration, and even shame. Here's the great news. All of these feelings are natural and all writers experience them. The problem, though, is that when your writing dreams bring you more anxiety than joy, it affects your resolve and your productivity, and you end up not taking the action you need to take in order to propel your dreams in the right direction so that they can stand a strong chance of coming true. That's why Sophie created the Dream Author Coaching Program, 
to teach anyone who is passionate about writing how to change the way they build, think about, and pursue their writing dreams in order to become their own most powerful ally and advocate for the rest of their writing life. And more great news. Once you've learned that skill, it lasts forever. Visit dreamauthorcoaching.com to get started today. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no further than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started. Were there family members that you could, um, you know, uh, try to 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 get the the details, the the flavor of the story from, or the the flavor of the time uh, from? Because you know we can get historical facts from a lot of different places, but um, did did family members talk about this to, to kind of give you a sense of? what it was really like, what it felt like, what what some of the day-to-day struggles were? Well, my parents were quite young children um, during most of the occupation, and they do remember bits and pieces of it. Um, there's, some, there's some really amazing stories. Like my dad told me a story of when the invasion happened in the summer of 1940, and he would have been five years old then, and he rushed out into the back garden wearing his little toy tin hat and his, with his little toy gun. And he was shouting, don't worry, mum, I'll get those Germans for you. And she, had to, she had to drag him into the house because there were bombers flying overhead oh um, uh, and, and planes strafing the harbour. And she had to say, darling, it's not a game. You've got to come inside. Um, but, but actually, I was very fortunate. I was able to interview my grandmother a few years before she died and actually get some of her personal experiences um, on, a, on a tape recorder. And, um, and I've used some of that in, in the film and, and little bits in the, in the book that you can, use bits of, um, you can use bits of personal story. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, does add, it, it does add something, obviously, if you can get those little bits of personal stuff in there somehow. Sure. Um, from from growing up and, and hearing these stories, I'm sure, or in, and and seeing how um, uh, history affected people and 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 the place where you were from, um, and and then going through your career as a as a stand up comic and then a screenwriter, when did this story start coming to you that that you knew this was going to be a novel that you would write that 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 you know when did this start taking shape? in your mind as a story that you could tell? Well, I actually only found out about this particular story um, about Hedy um, in about, I think it was end of 2015 or early or maybe beginning of 2016. Um, There's a historian I know. There are several very respected Channel Island historians. um, uh, And and one, Julie Carr, who I I know, um, had seen my film, Another Mother's Son, and we've been in touch over that. And she was the person who um, brought Dorothea um, into the public domain, really, as uh, when she uh, applied for her to have a Yad Vashem award 
as a posthumous award for saving Hedy's life. And um, and the first thing she sent me in 2016 was two links um, from the BBC local news, um, which was telling the story. And she said, isn't this an extraordinary story? And I said, wow, it really is. Um, and at that time, I thought, well, that was kind of when I decided to do it as a book because I had the um, another mother son had just come out. And I thought, well, I don't think I want to attempt another screenplay, which is, although it's a different story, is set in the same place and there's going to be a lot of overlap. So yeah. I'm going to try it in a different format. I also wanted to see, having not tried for 20 years, if I could write a novel. So, um, yeah, so I, I started working on it in about sort of 2016. Um, and it took me a couple of years to to put it together. What were some of those challenges um, that that you faced in in making a novel of this story? Because obviously you you're very adept at storytelling. You had you had um, you know on on numerous occasions written things that that went had a beginning, middle, and end. And um, you know this was this was a familiar um, uh, state for you. But uh, what were some of the challenges that that you Raised other than, you know, I've tried this before and it didn't work out, you know, some of those feelings. Um, but what were some of the things that you had to deal with? Well, first of all, you have to work out the kind of the blend of the fact and the fiction, because the the main foundation of the story, is, which is documented um, and which we know to be true, um, was quite easy because we knew that Hedy arrived in, in 1938. We knew that she worked for a local family and that she was trapped there by the invasion in 1940. We knew that she worked for the Germans. We knew that she had this relationship um, with this German officer. And we knew that Dorothea in 1943 took her in when she was caught stealing. And we knew that um, she was hidden for 18 months at Dorothea's house. So all the foundation of that part of the story was all accurate, but we didn't really know very much else because. Um, just she she'd never spoken about it and very little was known so we had i had to kind of find ways to fill in what i thought was the most likely way that things happened because we, we don't actually know how those people met each other or how those relationships developed so i had to find a way that i thought was both plausible and realistic for the time period but also created a good dramatic story within the book um and also trying to figure out what the motivations of the characters would have been, how they would have reacted to each other, why they would have done certain things. Um, I mean, we don't know, for example, why Hedy, as a registered Jew, took a job with the Germans. Um, we just know that that happened. So what you have to do as a writer is put yourself in that situation and think, well, what would have driven her to do that? And I came up with the fact I think it must have been desperation. Because there would have been so little other work and money available. Right. Um, and if you didn't have money, you had no access to the black market and you were likely to, to starve if you lived in town. So, um, yeah, it was just trying to, trying to put all that stuff together and then, and then to, and to make the, the story work. Jenny, I've asked um, several historical fiction writers um, this this question or a variation of this question, and I'd love to 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 have your insight on it. Um, World War Two was um, uh, eighty years ago now uh, from the the beginnings of that. Um, 
And most of the people who had a personal experience with that um, have died or uh, are, you know, well advanced in age. And and we're we're losing a lot of our personal mm. connection to this time, this place, this uh, horrific event. Um, right now, the last several years, we're seeing a a great resurgence, uh, uh, or maybe not resurgence. Maybe this is the the first time um, in in uh, uh, a a renewed um, uh, what what's the word I'm looking for um, interest in in this time period and these stories. Um, why do you think that now uh, we're seeing all of this great historical fiction? coming out about this time period, about the people, about these particular situations. Uh, is it because we're we're far enough away from it now that that history, um, you know, starts reducing things to bullet points and we don't want to lose the the humanity behind this? Well, why is this? Uh, why are these stories resonating so deeply right now? Well, that's a really good question. And I don't know if I know the answer to that. Um, I can I can only really answer it personally. I think in in that I grew up knowing um, the history of my family and knowing the background um, and against which I'd grown up. I mean, I used to play hopscotch on the top of the German bunkers uh, without any sense of what they really meant. You know, we used to go swimming and you'd lean against the anti tank walls at the back of the beach without any sense of what those walls really meant. Um, and as a young person, I don't think I was very interested in the war and the occupation, particularly um, when the fiftieth anniversary happened. I was in my I was in my thirties uh, then, and members of my family started being included in documentaries um, that were shown on national British television. And I remember thinking, God, this is really extraordinary. And I actually feel that I should I should be taking this a lot more seriously um, because I'm a writer and. These stories are going to get lost if I don't write about them now. Um, at that time, my mum was still alive. There were still people I could ask. I could ask about. Um, there's a, a lovely guy who's now a hundred years old called Bob Lesueur, who was actually directly involved in um, in my family's story. So I could speak to him about certain things. And I suddenly realised that if you don't catch it now, it's going to be too late. Um, I think the other aspect of it, possibly is that there is a whole generation growing up that didn't have any personal family connection with this as time goes by. And there was a terrifying uh, statistic which came up recently that I, I can't remember exactly what the stats were, but it was a frightening number of people in Britain who knew nothing about the Holocaust and many of which didn't know that Jewish people were killed or that anyone was killed in concentration camps. And that that really alarms me because that's something I'd grown up with as wallpaper in my life, knowing that it was there. Right. And, um, and I think it's important, particularly with a lot of what's going on in, you know, in our parts of the world now, um, as opposed to it being something distant and foreign and that happens elsewhere. I think, you know, we need to watch out for that stuff and we need to know how it starts and we need to be aware of it and we need to be vigilant of it. And I think by understanding history, you know, as they say, if you don't understand it, you'll you're destined to repeat it. Right. Well, the girl from the Channel Islands, a World War II novel, is available everywhere now. 
uh, in Kindle edition or hardcover or audiobook, however you like to consume books, it is available. Uh, just check the show notes of this episode. There's links to it where you can grab it uh, easily. Uh, Jenny, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you're doing, is there a place where they can find you online? Um, I have a new website, which is jennylacote.com. So they can have a look there and um, and uh, see the different versions of the book and see a little bit about my past. Oh, and the, uh, the film, Another Mother's Son, has just become available on... Um, us amazon prime as well so so they can check amazing we'll put a link to that as well um jenny this has been so much fun chatting thank you so much for taking time to come on the show today oh thank you it's been a pleasure